my man Robin Lee. Hey man. How, how the fuck are you, man? I'm good. I'm yeah. I'm a lot older, a lot grayer. <laughs> Couldn't have told. Couldn't have told at all. No, no, no. You, you have to look closely. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I want to ask you about um, how you started, right? Because you obviously don't fit the profile of a typical uh, startup entrepreneur. Mm. These guys are typically in their 20s, but you know, you started your journey late in your 40s, kind of like what my, what my age is. Mm. We're at that stage where typically we're kind of like, you know, finding some equilibrium in our lives, but you, you took it on, you took the animal on. Yeah. Why? Well, it's, uh, you know, I think I had an itch, that's like an entrepreneurial itch with a specific idea that I wanted to pursue. I mean, originally, you know, the idea was something that I wanted to pursue in whatever guise, whether it was through a, a corporate or whether it was through uh, friends or whichever way. It just so happened that the best way of getting this idea off the ground was to go out and do a startup. And I think that's primarily the motivation for folks around my age. Um, you know, you have this idea, you're, you're desperate to, to make it real and then you uh, take the plunge in a moment of madness. But, but the questions must have been ridiculous, right? Because you were married, you had children, you had gotten some savings, you, you know, obviously you, you're not the same person you are at 25. You're, you've got this, mm. you know, well, potentially you've got less years ahead of you than you have behind you, unless you live to 100, say. Right. So how did you deal with all this que all these questions? Well, that's why that's why, you know, it's the itch. I think, you know, if, if you need to scratch the itch, you have to scratch it. Yeah. I mean, you can't you, you can try to ignore it, but the itch is still there. I think so that what, was what was that the itch for you? The itch was to to create something that uh, could potentially do good for society uh, that could be beneficial to a lot of people that are disenfranchised. Uh, in the case of what we're doing in Halogov, uh, in, in the financial markets. And I believe that I had the solution to fix that problem. And I wanted to see it through because I couldn't uh, see anyone taking up the, the mantle of trying to fix this in a serious way. Uh, you know, like I said at the beginning, if, we if I could have done it with a big corporate, like say BlackRock, you know, I probably would have done that. It would have been a lot uh, less risky, you know. Um, but, you know, that wasn't uh, an option open to me, so I decided to do it myself. Ultimately, it's the itch. How, how, how itchy are you? <laughs> so, I find it very hard to believe because I'm a cynical journalist, yes. right? So, um, altruism is, isn't typically the motivating factor for entrepreneurs. It's, it's the pot of gold, right? It is the, the cash out at the end of the journey, and that's typically what drives them. It's, it's not typically the, the mission, lah. Is that true? Um, is, is that true? Look, does does it matter that you that potentially at the end of the journey you you get rewarded by the insanely or in some yeah. some size? Absolutely, it's important. But if you set out as an entrepreneur, particularly at my age, and in, even to a certain degree, yeah, I'd say up to you know, thirty plus, um, on the basis that I have this idea, I think it's going to make me incredibly wealthy then I think you're doing it for the wrong reasons at a very rational level because 95% of all startups fail. And you know, if you fail, you want to fail fast. But yeah. there's, a chance, there's a good chance that you'll fail uh, through a, de a death by a thousand cuts yeah. over many, yeah. many years. 
And, and that journey between the start and the, and the death is going to be incredibly painful. And if you're only doing it for just one reason, which is to make money, then I think you know, you're in for a ton of pain. Uh, you need to fundamentally believe in what you're trying to achieve, whether it's for social impact, whether it's for you know, saving the environment, whether it's to create the next Uber, the next Grab, whatever it is, you have to fundamentally believe in the idea. I mean, you know, it's like a religion. And if you can do that, then I think you are in a better place to make the right decision with your career than you would otherwise if you were just doing it, oh, because I have this great idea, no one's doing it, I think I'm going to make a whole lot of money. So that would obviously guide you and Red One, your founder. But how do you translate that to your people? Because they might join you, um, maybe because of the pot of gold, but also because they've got to buy into your vision. How do you, you know, cascade that? Because you've, you've now got a few countries, right? You've got a few markets, you've got Indonesia, you've got Thailand. Yeah. Uh, you're starting to open up in other parts of the world. And you have to, right? Yeah. Because otherwise you, Malaysia's too small. Yeah, I mean, we've got about, I mean, it's insane. I think we have 70 people according to our head of HR, and we now have a head of HR. That's how big we've grown. Um, so how you sell, the, you know, Hello Gold or any startup to, to potential uh, folks that, that you want to work with you uh, actually depends on where they are in life, right? Um, so, you know, if you're talking to a fresh graduate or, or, or you know, early, uh, sorry, a young 20-something-year-old, you talk about the experiences that they're going to get in a startup environment where there's a lot of unstructured, there's less structure, and actually your ability to, to, to grow is a function of your appetite to work hard because you know, there's no such thing as, I just want you to focus on this because there's nothing else that you can do. We have so much as a startup that we need doing is that if you want to do it, by all means, because yeah. you know, there's so much that needs to be done. But when you go, to, when you talk to someone in, in their thirties, you know, late th early thirties to late thirties, where they're in a, in a place where uh, they're in a good place from a career perspective, then you need to have a slightly different conversation with them, you know, because you're bringing someone in from a a a job where they're hopefully in the right trajectory to one that is fraught with risks that's inherent yeah. in all startups, and yes, compensation and the pot of gold is part of the conversation. But actually, more fundamentally, it's still a function of this is what we're trying to do, and, and you can be part of that story. Now, does that story excite you? If it does, then you know, do we have the right balance between being part of history, so to speak, uh, and, and the compensation? And that's a powerful message, right? Clearly. Uh, well, it can be for some. It doesn't work for everyone because everyone wants to, uh, you know, they want the pile of pile of cash, which is understandable, yeah. but. Like I said, you know, startup risks are high, and there's every chance that we can go from zero to hero and back to zero again before you cash out. So what you've done is incredibly um, expensive. I mean, obviously, you've, you've been running this for at least the last two or three years, right? You've been funding it from your own pocket. Um, you were trying to find investors, and I think you have found investors. But does that message, do, does your message to the investors um, become complicated? Because typically, the uh, startup investor or the early investor wants to, I mean, part of the proposition is to buy into youth because they've got the 20, 30 years uh, runway in front of them. But again, I mean, you and I, you know, we're, we're at a different vintage, yeah. right? Well, so I, how do you convince them about that? I, I think the, 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 the mythology of, of, of the young entrepreneur making it uh, successfully through, you know, startup through to exit is a mythology. And I think studies in the last couple of years have shown that. 
I mean, everyone reads about you know Google and Microsoft when they start up and they leave university, but they don't read about the millions of other startups where kids leave before university finishes or you know early in the twenties. So you, everyone hears the success stories. No one hears about the rest. I mean, studies have shown, I think, in America that there is an optimal age uh, of an entrepreneur that has the right balance between experience, energy, um, connections, a business idea, business acumen, etc. And that's around the 40s. So yes, I'm still on the wrong side of that. But, you know, <laughs> but um, the the issue is, I think, um, for a lot of people. It isn't just about the idea, because ideas are relatively simple. You start to execute. So execution and experience actually come to the fore once you have the idea. As a as a investor, and look, I you know, in my previous life I've invested as an LP alongside uh, VCs. The issue is this, you know, there are three fundamental questions people need to ask. Do I like the idea? Do I believe that this is gonna be massive? Okay. If so, you go to the next question. The next question is is the guy sitting opposite me someone that I can be, I believe will be able to execute successfully an idea with him and his team? You know, then the last question is okay. If those two things are yes, then let me do the math to see how big this can possibly be on a risk-adjusted basis, and then I make a decision as to how much to invest. I mean, rationally, that's what investors should be doing. Um, there's no point having a great idea if you know you look across the table and regardless of age you see the guy say, mm, i'm not sure he knows the right people or has enough experience in this space to execute because it'll just be a great idea that fails so it's it's also conversely right when you talk to investors as well you want to get the right guys on board because the the wrong investors on your board of directors can be a huge and in fact it, it is a huge challenge right they'll run over you sometimes so when you when you talk to investors as well how, how do you um, assess that you've got the right guys potentially on board. What kind of what kind of things do you look out for? Okay, the, there is the theory and then there's the reality. What which one do you want, the theory or the reality? <laughs> <laughs> well, the theory you're absolutely right, right? You want uh, uh, you want folks that not just give you the money but also can add value to whatever it is you're doing, either in terms of their network or in terms of the experience, so they can mentor you, uh, so that you know you you make fewer mistakes um, and they help you go to market for the next round. So that's the theory. The reality, particularly in Malaysia, is fundamentally different. Um, most of last year, I did a series of talks at conferences about the challenges of doing a startup in Malaysia, yeah. a tech startup, within the context of just the ASEAN region. And this is the tragedy of it all right now. You know, uh, if you look, a survey was done last year um, by one of the publications asking entrepreneurs, you know, where's your, where's your preferred choice of location if you were to do a startup? 50% of the market said Singapore out of the whole of predictably. Asia. Pr predictably. Um, which is a challenge for, for a country like us because yeah. it means you have a, a, a brain drain. Yeah. Then they were asked why, and, and they said, well, it's a function of talent and funding, okay? And when you break down the fund, then you look at the funding levels uh, between just Malaysia and Singapore. The average startup in Malaysia got, I think, like 60% less funding than the comparable startup in Singapore, which means that you are disadvantaged from the get-go. Yeah. Right? And that then spills over to hiring because in the tech space, if you're hiring uh, and you're hiring at a regional level for talent, say you find someone I don't know, in Laos or Myanmar, a tech guy that you want to hire, and he has a choice to leave his family to work in Singapore or Malaysia. And in Malaysia, you're paying him 
a third of what that he earns in Singapore, there's only one winner in this. He will go to Singapore. Yeah. So the question then is, how do you fix that, right? And you fix that by raising more money. So the challenge for a lot of startups... So, so you're willing to pay th- over the odds to get the guy to come and sit with you in Malaysia rather than Singapore? Well, he doesn't have to sit with me in Malaysia, but he just has to work for me, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the reality. Because uh, there's a, tech, a dev tech shortage in the region, just generally around the world, yeah. but more so in the region. So then h- how do you address that? You address that by raising more money, but you know, people don't raise that much money in Malaysia. And, and, you know, coming back to your original question, you know, the reality is this, you know, if people are going to give you checks, um, you know, there, there's a huge temptation to, to just take the check regardless because... Because yeah, you need the cash. Because you need, you cash, need cash to, to yeah. fund, you know, your business. Um, and so theoretically, I, I get it, but actually the reality is it's a hugely difficult balance to maintain. Uh, I think for any any startup entrepreneur within the context of yeah. ASEAN X, Singapore and Indonesia, because you might end up uh, managing your investors and managing their expectations much more than you would otherwise have liked to do in running the business and starting the business. Right? I mean, mm. I've been in that situation before, yeah. and I've had um, investors bang their hands on the table asking whether revenue is. They don't understand the business. Mm. They take up all your time. They drain you emotionally. It's it's terrible. It's it's a huge. Uh, penalty but the flip side to that is at least you have a business to run right. <laughs> <laughs> with, their, with their cash with right? their cash right yeah. so that that's that's constant i mean having said that you know we've been very fortunate with our investor base um you know we have uh, incredibly uh, uh, helpful investors in in terms of giving us the space to grow and to recover from the mistakes that we make and so yeah long may that continue so you, you came from the World Gold Council. I think you were the CFO there. Yes. Biggest um, gold-backed uh, fund in the world. Mm. And then before that, the Securities Commission. I kind of Well, remember. there was a few things in yeah, between. Yeah, in between. <laughs> <laughs> but typically, financial industry, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Those institutions don't lend themselves to entrepreneurs, generally speaking. Yeah. Uh, so do you think you came from that ilk, generally? Or did you, did you just... Did you just really want to make it happen and, and test yourself in the world of business? Because I think... This is, this is your first one, right? The second ish, one ish, is my first yeah. one that got off the ground. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, so I, I think the you know if, if you are ambitious in whatever it is that you choose to do, whether it's a mainstream career in a corporate or to do a startup, I, I think it's not so much whether you are entrepreneurial or not. I mean, you are ambitious to yeah. achieve certain things, and you'll you know think about what it will take to achieve those goals, uh, and I think. In that sense, uh, I guess I have a slightly different view from a lot of other people in terms of there are some certain folks that are more uh, predispo- predisposed to become an entrepreneur than others. Yeah. I think if you're sufficiently ambitious um, and you understand risk reward and you're pretty rational, you can flip between the two. So f- when you when you run the business now, right, and and uh, obviously you 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 you're caning it, right? Mm-hmm. I, I've never seen, you know, you told me that you you've never worked as hard as this in your life. Yes. Um, right. Yeah. How 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 how, bad, how how hard is it? How it's, hard are you? I mean, literally explain your day to me. Well, it's okay. My day, okay. I, I'm not sure I'm the best example, best practice as to how to do this thing because there's no balance. Um, th- let me let me start by this. You know the, the you know if again I come back to ambition. If you are incredibly ambitious uh, uh, in in a, in a corporate job uh, and 
uh, uh, you will work very hard. You can take your holidays, but you can choose to work through your holidays just to achieve your ambition and you will not stop. Right? But you can also choose to take a break and take the f those four weeks off and just decompress. Yeah. Um, that choice is yours uh, and you won't lose your job because of it. Your, 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 your superiors are unlikely to think any less of you. Um, I think in, in an entrepreneurial startup, in an entrepreneurial setup, it's slightly different. I can take my time off, but actually the business needs me. So, you know, uh, that choice is kind of like a false choice. I kind of have it, but I don't. Um, you know, I have you know, investors to look after, mouths to feed, literally, and we need to get to a level where we are sustainable. So, you know, it's always on. Uh, and, and that's a huge And it's been challenge. on for the last three years. And it's been on for the last three <laughs> years. Yeah, so, so you, you never really have a break. You're always thinking about it and whatever you're doing, you know, whoever, you know, whether you're on holiday, whether you wake up in the middle of the night and you think, oh shit, you know, <laughs> and you start doing some work and then you go back to sleep or try to get to sleep. Um, so you're always on. Um, I'm not saying that's the right thing, but that's the pressure that you're under. I think the other big difference between... Um, you know, startup life and, and corporate life. And I tell this to my team is that, and I tell this to, to people that work with us, contractors that work with us, you know, we can't afford to get it wrong. We have to hit the, we have to hit the mark every time because if we don't achieve what we set out to achieve this year, there's no next year. But that's impossible, right? Who can get it right 10 out of 10? Well, you can't, but you gotta basically fix it as you go along. I mean, I've heard various people describe what startup life is like. I mean, the way I used to describe it is like this. Imagine you're in a car, I don't know, there's a Volkswagen thing, Beetle, right? Yeah. Um, 2CV or whatever that is. You're, you're in a Volkswagen Beetle uh, on the North-South Highway and your challenge is to convert that Volkswagen Beetle to a Maserati um, whilst you're still driving and there's traffic <laughs> on the wrong side of the road. That's what a startup life is like. I mean, you are making decisions based on the best information, based on the environment that you know, and yes, you're bound to f screw up. The, so the challenge is to minimize the amount of systemically bad decisions and maximize the ones that are good, and sometimes yeah. you get it wrong, and, but hopefully the ones that you get wrong are, are things that you, know, you can afford to screw up, like, oh, I've got, the radio connected the wrong way yeah as opposed to the radio is not connected to the brakes yeah yeah so there's all kinds of things that can go wrong but there's two sides of it right because there's the stuff that you can control which is within your organization and within your sphere and then there's the stuff which is out of your control right mm -hmm. so the stuff within your control um it, it, intuitively kind of, it seems kind of easy easier if you're in an established business like you know maybe you're developing properties mm -hmm. or you run a, a hospital or something which are, you know you can kind of like the people have been there before. There's, there's a roadmap which you can follow. There's a, there's a blueprint. But you are in something which is completely different, right? You're, doing, you're, you're building a global gold transaction platform. You're doing it on blockchain technology. You're trying to do it in ASEAN where there's 650 million people um, and mm. you've got a, a, a large enough market, right? Mm. All three of which have largely been... <laughs> there is no blueprint. Mm. You're, you're forging the blueprint. Yes. So how, how fucking hard is it? Uh, well, uh, th again, theoretically, it isn't that hard because, you know, theoretically, we had a business plan, we had a roadmap, we kind of knew exactly what we wanted to do. But, you know, things happen along the way. And also our hypothesis, our, so our assumptions sometimes um, don't pan out the way they pan out and then you have to adjust. Uh, yeah. 
So it's a combination of things. Externalities uh, affect your life. Um, in, internal stuff happens because you know you hire people, and and, and hiring is a very important piece because the people are the ones that are going to build this business. And sometimes you get it wrong, you know, and then you have to fix it. You are, you know, uh, and we have gotten it wrong, uh, and you know we've made uh, tough decisions to fix those things. Other times you you have a strategy that you think will work, and then in hindsight you say. Oh, okay, okay, that was never going to work. Yeah. So, uh, what was I smoking when I <laughs> when I came up with that idea? But hopefully, you you um, you learn from it. I don't think it's like you said; it's realistic to 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 hit the ground, hit the mark every time. But I think what is realistic is to have a clear game plan and, and clear um, a clear sense as to what you do if it doesn't work. Yeah. So for the typical entrepreneur, right, who is about to start his own business or he's maybe in the early throes of the romance, what are the kind of like um, the, mo- the most pressing issues that, that, that plague, if you like, for want of a better word, the entrepreneur? Is it hiring right? Is it paying the right salaries? Is it you know, building new market, making the best use of technology? There's so many things, yeah. right? In your opinion, what is it? Um, okay, assuming that the idea is a great idea. Okay. okay, so that's the base assumption. Okay, you're, yeah, you're, not, you have, you're, not, okay. you're, not, you're not starting another burger stall, right? For yeah. example. Because having said that, you know, um, ever since I came back to Malaysia and ever since we started creating uh, a presence in the marketplace, you know, uh, from time to time people come and chat with me because they have an idea and they want to bounce it off me. Uh, and, you know, I'd say a large chunk of them are, are I mean, I just don't see the value proposition. And I mean, that's if you want to go back to the basic, you've got to have something that, you know, yeah. has legs. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and there's a fine line between uh, believing in what you do so much that you ignore everyone that says no, because they'll just drag you down. Yeah. And also believing it because it's but there's nothing in it. And I don't know what the answer to that. But let's assume the, you know, the idea is great that I think within the Malaysian context, the most important thing is funding. Uh, the big challenge in Malaysia is that your access to funding, uh, either through the VC space, angel space, you know, government grants, is actually very, very limited. So still, you, yeah, even still, absolutely. Uh, you know, um, like I said, you know, that's why last year I spent most of last year talking about, you know, how to fix this problem because you know, Hello Gold was fortunate. Uh, we raised a, a quite a substantial amount of money. But I think we were one of the exceptions, and I want yeah. to try and fix the problem for the folks coming after us. Yeah. At least try and you know have that conversation. Um, so I think the most important thing is funding. If you can't get enough funding, uh, you're kind of stuck, right? Um, you, you, you're, is is, you're is there any way you can run a business and, and, and build the business through um, organic means? Organically means you build it, you get enough revenue. That revenue helps pay for the the, 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 the expenses. And then you do it via not set, you know not setting your share or you and Red One share yeah. because clearly yeah. uh, when you relinquish equity or you relinquish ownership in the company at mm. some point in time if you're not careful you're yeah. gonna lose control of your business and then you get pushed yeah. out like St- like uh, Steve Jobs did right yeah well so so yeah absolutely Theoret- again theoretically it is entirely possible to do that uh, and you know people have done that you know uh, there are startups that were that were instant successes, right? They they they, they became cash flow positive within the first six months. That's right. Uh, but that's the exception, not the norm, right? I mean, if you're lucky t- enough to have that idea and you're you know, awesome enough to execute on well, it, well, you so just don't grow fast enough at the speed that you want to. Um, but right. then 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 the issue is this, right? If you this is the the problem. 
if your idea is good and you obviously you're only doing it because you think your idea is good yeah you once you go to market um you can't legislate against other people coming in yeah so imagine the scenario you know i'm a malaysian startup you know i have this idea i have limited funds so i'm just growing on a sustainable way that's going to get me 10 years to get to cash flow break even and then before i can uh move to another another market I'm an Indonesian startup with the same idea, the same capabilities, execute at the same time. And then at some point they decide they're going to expand. Even if they expand at the same time into the new market. So you go, your Malaysian one goes to Indonesia, Indonesian one goes to Malaysia. The Indonesian one is in all likelihood going to eat you up because they have greater firepower, because they have more customers, because it's a bigger market, they yeah. have a bigger uh, funding capacity. And in a, in a war of attrition, you will run out of cash. So, you know, like I said, notwithstanding so the need, lucky ones, you, you that need happen. to raise that money. You need yeah. to sell that, that equity. But then, then, then there's the perennial conundrum, right? Because if you sell shares too early in the business, you sell it at a cheaper price because your valuation is lower. And then you hopefully want to get to a certain size where you sell at a higher price, and then you you get rid, where you lose less shares in the business. No, absolutely. So, so how how do you navigate that? People talk about it, and I, you know, it's slightly different for me. I think if I was talking to a kind of younger guys are late 20s early 30s and it's their first startup that you, you have life for a couple more right um you know get the first one under your belt yeah 100 percent of nothing is still nothing the last yeah. time i checked yeah. when you have 10 percent of something it's still more than 100 percent of nothing yeah um look if you're lucky enough to be able to sustain this business and grow at a fair pace uh without dilution of course you do that right um because why not uh, but if you are able to manage the, the balance between retaining control and ownership and, and getting funding, then, uh, then you know, try and figure what that is. And yeah. actually what's more important from a, from a startup standpoint is not how much you own, but how much you can control. Because what you need to do is make sure that even if you dilute away your ownership of the business to get the funding, you still have retain sufficient equity to manage the business because ultimately it's your idea and ultimately the investors bought into you executing it not them executing it yeah uh, until such time as if if you screw it up and you make the wrong decisions then you don't have enough shares of the business then they might vote you out like what happened with steve jobs yeah or or you 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 sell too much equity in the business and then when it's time to cash out you know, rather than having 51% of the business, which is worth, I don't know, say 10 million bucks, you only have 3% of the business, which is only worth 10, do you know what I mean? So, yeah. so then the, the proposition. So again, I mean, does, does that all play into your mind when you... When you um, actually, for me, no. Uh, to, to your first point, right? If, if you screw up a business so badly that the shareholders want to kick you out, yeah, then you probably deserve to be kicked out. <laughs> um, Did Steve Jobs... You know, did, did Steve Jobs deserve to be kicked out? But he, they brought, him, they brought him back in. They did, but yes. after three or four years, after he built Pixar, right? And so, so, you know, uh, um, that, that's that's the contract that you make when yeah. you do these transactions, yeah. right? When, when you sell shares, so it's, it's something. It's no different from when you're uh, working in a corporate. You do well, you get the job. You don't do well, you get you, sacked. You get sacked. Yeah. Uh, so in my mind, that's 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 fair game. Um, of course, you want to not get sacked but if you're doing such a crappy job then you deserve it now in terms of compensation at the end of the day you, you know like i said um i think there's a f big difference between what you want and what you need yeah 
uh, and come back to the 20 something year old, 30 year old person, right? You have, you know, a 20 year old, 20 year long career path ahead of you to do whatever it is you want. If you, so long as you get your first one off the ground, your second one's going to be much easier to get off the ground in terms of getting funding, getting the right kind of talent uh, into, into the business. So getting something out of it, I think is a huge, huge benefit rather than you know, being too dogmatic about how much you earn, notwithstanding the fact that you want to retain management control. And of course you want to maximize the value for all the hard work that you put in. Yeah, yeah. So the whole idea behind Hello Gold um, and, and the valuation that you are getting mm. is because not just about Malaysia, right? It's, it's, a, it's the global market. And North America, by and large, has got some players, right? Mm. The Canadian guys and so on yeah. and so forth. And the UK is same as well. Yeah. But the, the pot of gold is mm. in ASEAN, is in Asia, is in China, is in Indonesia, is yeah. in Thailand. Um, Malaysia is too small, 31 million people, mm. right? Yeah. How do you crack this code? Because every, every other guy wants it. Every other guy wants to have a good sizable market share yeah. in the 650 million people in ASEAN. Yeah. And the big guys are the Indonesians, the Thais, the, yeah. the Burmese, right? How are you doing it? Well, well, first off, you know, um, what we're trying to do with Gold, we want to be an emerging market play. We want to be kind of like the black rock for, for the mass market and that, emerging markets. Yeah, that's so where the growth is. That's where the growth is. And also that's where we think uh, the people, the, we have the most number of people with the, with the pain points that we're trying to solve. Coming back specifically to ASEAN, um, well, it remains to be seen whether we can crack it. We think yeah. we have the, we figured out the code to crack it, but we're now trying, we're, we are just we have just recently launched in Thailand, so we'll know in the next twelve months whether we've cracked it or not. Uh, and, and you know we're going to head into Indonesia. We've set up shop in Indonesia. We hope to launch in the second half of the year. I think cracking one one of the benefits of ASEAN is that um, it's a huge market, but it's not a homogenous market. It's not that's, like right. a, that's the biggest challenge. You can see it's the biggest challenge, but also what it means is that it is uh, advantage. You can turn it to your advantage. What I mean by that is that it means that anyone that comes in, uh, whether you know if it's a Tencent or Ant Financial, they have to go to market. They can't just launch in one platform and 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 and, and hit the ground running across the whole of ASEAN. They have to go country by country too. Um, so so it slows down the ability to 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 be all pervasive, and uh, you know not that you know we look at Ant Financial as Tencent as our <laughs> not yet. Potential buyers, maybe. <laughs> um, you know, so, so, so a lot of our competitors, you know, a lot of the homegrown startups in Thailand and Indonesia, they, they have the same issues as us. So, so we can equalize and, and what we believe, and this is where the investors come in and, you know, the age experience comes in. You know, do you have the network, the experience, the contacts to navigate the regulators, the policymakers, the potential partners, so that you can hit the ground running with the right kind of ecosystem? in new markets. So, you know, if you're an Indonesian or a Filipino company trying to go to Thailand, I mean, do you have that available to you and that you can uh, bring that up as fast as you can? Uh, we believe, and like I said, uh, it remains to be tested, that uh, we have the, the guts of those, in, in those ingredients to make a successful attempt at being uh, uh, pervasive in, in the key ASEAN countries over the next couple of years. Those ingredients, do they come from your investors or do they come within your personal uh, networks? Because, I mean, some of the 
precedents that have come and gone in the past. Um, I you know cite, cite things like maybe the e-commerce retailers, the Lazadas, the Shopee's of this world. They are in seven countries, right? Mm. Uh, maybe the Air Asia's of this world who have come and gone with reg- same kind of things, yeah. right? Regulators, yeah. banks, and what have you. Um, do they come via your investors or you buy via ecosystems? Uh, I think it's a combination of the two. Um, I think, you know, like Lazada on the e-commerce side is unregulated markets. It's just it's like Amazon, right? You don't need... C- kind of same as you guys, yeah. right? Well, Lazada Pay, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, I think the regulated, pro- regulated businesses are a lot more challenging. And that's where I think, you know, you can try to take advantage of the inherent challenges of going to each country. There's no passporting. Um, and I think, you know, this is where, uh, you know, whether it's our investors or our own network, you know, the contacts that we have and the contacts that we can build through those respective uh, parts of our kind of mentors, advisors, etc., become incredibly important so that, you know, they can pick up the phone and, and, and connect us with the right folks. Yeah. And we build out, build out our own network and then we can then like I said, build up for our business model the partnerships that we need to to, yeah. to make us successful. So then again, it goes back to the whole notion of um, raising the right capital from the right from the right people. Because if you get the wrong guys on board, you're sunk. Comes to regionalization. Because I, I guess every entrepreneur worth their salt in this part of the world wants to attack and, and beat and, and conquer the ASEAN market. I mean that that is the real market to be in. Um, well, no, look, I mean. Uh, I, I think you know entrepreneurs come in all shapes and sizes, and and you know some folks just want to do Malaysia, some folks just want to do Singapore, and that's fine. You know I think if you can get your business up and running and be successful in whatever your your ambition uh, may be, I think that's that's incredible yeah. achievement. So I don't think you know the scale of what it is that you're trying to do dictates you know how wonderful it is. Um, so again, depending on on the context of what you're trying to build. That can drive, you know, how important, you know, the type of investor you need uh, can look like. Yeah. But I still come back to my point. I still fundamentally believe this because, you know, you know, hollow gold aside, you know, I've met. I'm going to say about ten different people that had ten different ideas that came to me for advice as to how to get their businesses off the ground. And it's incredibly challenging. Um, money is still important, right? Um, if you have investors that are going to give you money, um, you know, and uh, you know, it's it's a it's a price that you need to consider paying. So even if you think you've got a fantastic idea, base assumption, good plan, right? Good mm. good business, good uh, good, mm. good growth potential. Mm. What what kind of hit rate can people expect? Is it ten percent, five percent, ten percent of what? Um, so if you meet ten investors. Uh. Half of them might might, might bite. Was so one of them might bite? That's that's five or ten percent, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think I think it gets harder. Uh, the more money you want, <laughs> the more money you want to raise. Because I thought the more money you want, then kind of makes it easier. Because nobody likes small ticket sizes, right? When you're a startup, like a seed round, uh, that or a Series A, yeah. uh, you know, it's actually quite hard to raise a size amount of cash. It just yeah. really does depend. Yeah. I think if you're trying to raise like I don't know, five hundred thousand ringgit, I don't think it's that. I think it's relatively straightforward. Yeah. If you want to raise five hundred thousand US, I think that's a bit more challenging. So if you want two million ringgit, yeah. If you want to raise five million US, I think that's incredibly challenging. And look, that's that was you know we raised north of 5 million US. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, um, it, it is incredibly challenging at, at that kind of end of the spectrum. I mean, what we raised was comparable to 
what startups r raised in, in uh, a mature developed market like in North America uh, and Western Europe. Uh, it's practically unheard of within the Malaysian context. Yeah, yeah. Given that's that that stage of the life cycle that we're in. Yeah, because I want to go back to the point where you said that um, a, a successful regionalization plan comes with your knowledge and your expert and your contacts with the regulators and, and, and banks potentially. Mm. Um, at consumer level, right? Mm. For, for you to expand to a Burma or Thailand or mm. Indonesia or Singapore even, um, I thought intuitively it's, it's really the, uh, the propensity of the relatively young Asian population to use smartphones and to do transactions on smartphones rather than at the tellers traditionally, mm. right? Mm. So that's one entry point. Then, then, and then there's gold. Gold is something that everybody understands, yeah. but not the young person. But yeah, the young person wants to buy Bitcoins. He doesn't want to buy gold. I mean, that's an assumption. Mm. Uh, what is your experience with? Um, well, our, our, our hypothesis when we built Hello Gold was that um, our typical uh, customer would be in their late 20s, late 30s, probably urban, probably married, probably uh, just one kid or about to have a kid. They have a place of their own. Uh, they have both, both, both husband and wife or boyfriend, girlfriend work. Did you, did you conduct a study for that or did you just, you know, uh, straw Plucked it out. Plucked it out of your... <laughs> um, well, uh, yes and no. So uh, because of, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to spend a, a long time with the World Council, we had done a lot of surveys in a lot, a lot of markets, not in Malaysia specifically, but a lot of markets from China and India to, to uh, Western Europe and North America. Uh, and the hypothesis that I made was that, look, unless Malaysians were fundamentally different from Chinese and Indians and Europeans, they would all have the same kind of propensity to buy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, and, we, and I, I can tell you now, right, after a year and a half in Malaysia, that uh, the, hypo the hypothetical customer is exactly what we have, except for one difference. Uh, I expected a, a, a more balanced gender split. Actually, the, the bulk of our customers are males. That was the only surprising thing. But everything else is exactly what we thought it was going to be. Why don't you think that is? Because typically, again, right? <laughs> I don't know. We're still trying to figure that out. Because and then we developed an app that we thought was uh, gender neutral and not terribly aggressive. If there's anything, the Hello Gold app is it's, it's quite friendly to the, to the fairer sex. Yes. In, in terms of the way it's designed. In fact, our first uh, so icon was a, a, a lady. Right. <laughs> but no, uh, it's, just, it's just happened that way. Um, and frankly, I... You know, I don't know why. Yeah. Um, but that aside, that one specific attribute aside, everything else is absolutely spot on. So coming back to you know your question, you know the for our target market, you know they 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 need a way to enable them to get ahead in life. Too many people don't have the ability to save well. I mean, in Malaysia, you have this problem. Banigara has said that seven out of ten Malaysians don't have the ability. Or, or the confidence that they can afford a, a thousand ringgit emergency. Uh, and when you set that in contrast to the fact that the minimum deposit that you can put into a fixed deposit in the Bank of Malaysia is a thousand ringgit, and you have to hold it there for six months, uh, there's, a fun there's a mismatch between what the market offers and what the people need. So there is a gap there. Um, and we think that gold fits that space uh, for uh, against uh, non-interest-bearing cash accounts, yeah. which is basically what you default into if you don't have enough money to put into fixed deposit. 
And our average transaction size is about 80 to 100 ringgit, you know, um, which again, you know, falls into that bracket of the income level that we thought our, our customers would be earning. And so, you know, for them, they want something they can understand. Um, and Bitcoin, as attractive as it may be to a, the, the, the informed market, is not something they naturally understand from a savings perspective. And so, yeah. you know, I, I don't think at this point in time, uh, there is a, 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 a goal and Bitcoin can be compared for the markets that we're trying to serve. You know, yeah. for, for other segments, absolutely, potentially. But, you know, for the people that we're trying to serve, I think um, gold is a far more attractive and compelling proposition for them. Yeah. So your um, typical client would be, as you said, right, late 20s, urban, you yeah. know, two incomes, one child, what have you. Yeah. They would probably be more willing to uh, not have their gold with them physically, right? Typically, right? Because the older fogies would mm. want to have their gold in their pockets or under their beds. Mm. And then they can take them out every night and have a look at them and, and whatever, mm. right? Yeah. That's okay. Uh, that's We're, okay. Uh, we, uh, so, you know, when we first started Hello Gold, we didn't do the survey. Yeah. But when we went to Thailand, we did the survey because yeah. now, you know, we were funded. We had, yeah. you know, we want to test the hypothesis. Yeah. And what we found was that, um, yes, there are there is a huge segment of society that will always want the physical, uh, that are traditional buyers of gold. And yeah. that's absolutely true, not just in Thailand, but across the world. Um, and age may come into it, but I don't think age does. It's just your... Yeah. So that's another assumption, yeah. which is kind of off kilter? Uh, no, no, it's actually what we... we yeah. I always knew that there'll be a huge chunk of the market that will always want physical gold yeah. bars and coins, because globally that's the largest you want to market. take it on and have a look and, exactly. and have that peace of mind right yes exactly but one of the big challenges is that uh, doing that is uh, it's uh, emotionally it's an understandable thing to do but rationally it's the worst kind of investment you can make why for our target market if you want to buy a one gram coin uh, one gram coin is about 170 ringgit right so the value of the coin is 170 ringgit but when you go to a shop to buy that coin it'll cost you anything up to 220, 230 ringgit. If you go Google any of the banks today and ask them, you know, just check how much a one gram coin is worth. I mean, how much it'll cost to buy the one gram coin, it'll be 220, 230 ringgit. So that's 20, 20 or 30% markup yes. on, spot, on, yes, on the spot. Yes, exactly. Rate. So you, imagine this, right? You're buying something, if you say you're buying Sing Dollar, right? Uh, and the Sing Dollar ringgit conversion is three ringgit, but you have to go to, you say, oh, it's okay, I'm going to buy it at 380 because <laughs> you know that's what you're gonna it's a bad investment that's crazy that's 25 percent above what it should be it is because if you think about what it costs to make that piece of gold right you someone has to buy the gold that's worth 170 ringgit for 170 ringgit because you won't go out for anything because that's, that's right. the prevailing price so yeah. already you cannot uh buy the one gram at 170 ringgit then you got to make it convert that big bar of gold into the small one gram yeah. there's cost involved in that yeah then you've got to deliver it to the wholesaler. Yeah. Then the wholesaler's got to deliver it to the retailer. So there's a lot of uh, steps in the process and therefore costs in the process before it comes to you. So it's not that, you know, when you go to a, a jewelry shop or goldsmiths, you know, when they sell it for 220, 230 ringgit, they're making it 20, 30%. They're actually making, you know, that five, 10%, whatever. There's like tons of layers in between. But there's a lot of intermediation in between, which is why, and then when you want to sell it, it's also a big you problem. You get whacked as well. You get whacked as well because the one of the big challenges with gold, particularly 
uh, in, in, in the retail space is you can do a lot of stuff to go. You can take out the gold and put like non-golden yeah, yeah. elements in there. So they'll always sell it, buy it back from you at a, at a, a, lower, price. At a lower price, yeah. like a five, six, seven percent discount. But more importantly than that, that, that sounds generous. I mean, I've, uh, I've been told you you don't get eighty cents on the dollar. Okay, oh, that's, right. that's even worse. Right. But even worse than that, you actually have to go back to the shop that you bought it from. Because if you buy from Habib, you can't sell it in the Pukong. No. Well, right. you, if they do, it'll be an even steeper discount. Yeah. So when you come to what we're trying to do, you know, we sell that one gram to you at one hundred and seventy ringgit plus our kind of fee. Right now, it's tiny. Like this yeah. tiny fee. And, want, and you can sell it back to us at any point in time for this, whatever the prevailing price is. But can they sell it out of your ecosystem? They, they can't, right? They're still going to be, be within your network. Yes, but right. the poor point is this, right? It's a financial product. I mean, people are buying gold to your initial point because they want to look at it, but ultimately it's a financial investment. It's a safe haven thing. So at some point in time, if you ever need to use it, you're going to sell it for cash, right? So all we're doing, we're, we're no different. If you think about the example where you go to the jewelry shop, you buy the gold at some point in money, you have to go back to the jewelry shop and sell it. That's all we're doing. We're just a much more efficient way of doing it. And you so can do it from the, from, the, from the convenience of your own home on your mobile phone 24-7. That is insane because a lot of people think they buy gold. It's, it's a safe, well, it is a store. It's a, it's a good store of, of your value, yes. right? But they don't understand that they're buying it at a huge markup to market prices. Yeah. They don't even realize that when they sell it back into the market, yeah. they're yeah. getting whacked again. So they're in the hole by 50, 60%. Well, yes, on, the, on the bid-ask, particularly, I mean, this is not true if you're buying a million dollars worth of gold, all right? But it's still, it, the, the percentages still come into play. No, well, once you get to a certain level, because um, so, it all comes to the making cost, right? So, so say the making cost is 10 ringgit, okay? So 10 ringgit as a percentage of 170 ringgit is huge, but 10 ringgit as a percentage of a million ringgit worth of gold is small. And the delivery cost, you know, so uh, that's why, you know, when people buy a lot of gold, uh, you can buy the physical. I mean, you have different issues about selling it and liquidating it. But that aside, uh, that your, your bid-ask spread, your round trip is relatively cheap. Yeah. But you have the inconvenience of, of getting, of liquidating it. So, for example, when you buy a kilo bar, which is about the size of, 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 of the phone, it, it, and that's like 170,000 ringgit, you know, you still have you can still sell it back but they will typically you know check it potentially right because yeah. you can do stuff yeah. and you buy the gold finger bar the 400 ounce bar which is you know about uh 400 so it's about 1.4 million ringgit you can never even sell that back you have to take the refiner and they'll melt it down for you because they will that's too yeah, big yeah that's too big <laughs> yeah. they, they, they're not sure that what you're selling them is actually full gold yeah, yeah exactly you, got like, you can do yeah. stuff so if you yeah. google it's like dodgy gold bars <laughs> and look at the images you can see so that is crazy so it, it sounds like you're building this platform which makes a lot of sense for people to transact in gold but then a lot of people they don't realize they don't realize the truth behind yeah. what they're paying and what they're getting for yeah. a, a realistic so, you're going to be spending a lot of money educating people on awareness. Well, and th that's why, you know, it's a long answer to the original question, yeah. you know. Um, so for folks that buy gold in a traditional way, you know, their propensity to continue to do that is actually very, very high because they're used to that. They're comfortable with that. Yeah. Um, our, our market in Malaysia currently uh, is made up of folk, seven out of ten of our customers have never bought gold before. So for them, there's no education. No involved. issue. There's yeah. no issue, right? They're comfortable with it and they do it. 
And when we did our survey in Thailand, it was exactly the same thing, right? The people that bought gold, that buy physical gold, are, 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 are more reluctant to change their ways of doing it. But the folks that have never bought gold before but want to buy gold are more have a greater propensity to buy through a platform like ours. Fantastic. And in, in, in the context of Thailand, I think, and I can't remember the exact uh, numbers, twenty only. And Thailand is a massive gold market. Only as massive as it is, only about twenty percent of the population buys gold. Buys gold. I mean, eighty percent doesn't. That's crazy. So, you know, we're targeting the eighty <laughs> percent. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. So there's this idea that because the markets are what ten years into the cycle, it's like the tail end of the whole rally, right? Mm. Um, and gold is going to explode this year. I mean, that's that's the thinking, generally speaking. Mm. Do you get the same sense? Well, that's what people said last year. Uh, this time last year, most people were expecting gold to break out um, and, and go into another cycle. Um, let me answer in two ways. I, I, the first of all, I think um, there's al it's always a good time to buy gold. Uh, the way I describe gold for our target market and actually for most people is it's like house insurance uh, from, for your investment portfolio. If you think about house insurance, you know, or, uh, you know everyone buys house insurance every, every year. And actually, what they hope is that it's a waste of money, right? Yeah. They hope that yeah. I'm throwing money down the drain of house insurance because if I have to use my house insurance, it means something bad has happened, and I don't want anything bad to happen. So I like to waste money buying house <laughs> insurance, but I would need I need to know that I have the security of house insurance. Gold is kind of like that. Under normal market conditions, you know, when markets are well, doing well, and you have investment advisors, you read the financial press, you make decisions, and mark, and you can do well with your investment portfolio. Gold does nothing. It's kind of asymmetric uh, against uh, most uh, assets. But when markets are very stressed, gold becomes negatively correlated. And you've seen it in, in crises after crises when anything's going south and you have to sell something to pay for uh, your children's education, your, your, your mortgage. You, you don't want to sell a losing position. You want to sell something that you can liquidate. Yeah. And that's where gold comes in. Gold is like your proxy for insurance against your investment portfolio just blowing up. Yeah. So you always want a little bit of it, uh, I think, at all times. Is that like an ideal proportion, 3%, 3 5% um, or whatever? Well, uh, if you look at the World Gold Council, I think they talk about you know, anything between 3 to 10%, depending on, on where you are in yeah. life. Um, so so you know, it really depends on your risk appetite, yeah. right? The lower your risk appetite, the more kind of gold you want, uh, and the higher the risk appetite, the less gold you want. So that's one aspect. The second, then I get more immediately, you know, I think there's the upside potential of gold is far higher than, than the downside potential because there's so many things at play right now uh, around the world that, that talks to a, 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 a push in the price upwards, you know. You have North uh, American politics um, and its impact on, on on globalization, trade, North Korea, Middle East, Turkey. I mean, you, know, you have Brexit, um, you have the China slowdown. I mean, there are all these things happening that that uh, would suggest that, you know, there's a greater chance that gold will break out rather than, than a, a lower chance of it breaking out. So I think, you know, the time is right. And then lastly is that financial crises tend to happen in, in uh, every seven to eight years. Uh, and we are beyond seven to eight years uh, in in the since the last one. And I just want to end on, on this 
other note. I mean, usually I, I, I answer the question with another question <laughs> when it comes to gold, because I, I don't want to be the one selling gold, right? Because yeah. obviously I'm the gold guy. Um, so I usually ask, you know, whoever's asking me the, to answer these questions. Do you think China and India are going to continue to prosper economically in the medium to long term? Good question. And if you do, then you have to imagine millions of people that have barely enough to live on to suddenly being able to save one cent, 10 cents a day. And when they do that, they're typically saving gold because they don't have bank accounts. So you imagine if you, if you believe in the, in the sustained long-term success of these two countries, then that's one data point, right? That won't serve to inform you. The second thing, which the kind of the, the, the question, um, uh, the, the the point I raised earlier is that, do you believe that the world is in a better place now or a shittier place now? <laughs> and if it's better, then you know maybe gold doesn't have a role to play. If it's shittier, yeah. then gold does. Uh, uh, and then, do you believe it's sh it's a shittier world now? Oh, for sure. Yes, right. Everything, all, all the indicators are awful, right? Not just the political ones, but look at Gini coefficients. You look at the... The, 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 the well, the, the, rich, the yeah, rich and poor yeah, divide. Exactly. So, so, you know, all these things are pointing to huge, huge amounts of stress across cultures, geographies, etc., uh, without exception. And I think, you know, that points to a, a, a challenges that politicians and policymakers will have to address. And they typically don't address issues um, in anticipation of them. So for example, if you look at the IMF, uh, they very rarely ever talk about, oh, we think there's going to be a recession next year. <laughs> but they have, and they've been saying it. No, but they generally talk about, you know, they're usually behind the curve, right? So yeah. they always say everything's good, everything's good until like just before. But some of the statements that have been making recently have yes. been uh, sounding quite ominous. So when you do that, you then when that starts to happen, you, you better take stock and, and take uh, take that warning seriously because what, they very rarely do that. What about Robin Lee? What does Robin Lee invest in? How, what's guided your investment philosophies in the last I don't know, 20, 30 years since you started working? Um, well, you know, I because I was always time poor, I just kind of outsourced it. Right? I just yeah. gave it to my advisors to yeah. invest um yeah. I, I like real stuff so real estate you know gold um you got physical yes i have physical yeah. not that yeah. much now but because yeah. all my money's <laughs> in my startup uh but it's uh you know I, I i prefer the real stuff because i i'm a simple guy yeah i have simple needs and, and it's very challenging to make financial decisions without doing a huge amount of homework unless you outsource it um, so, for example, you know, um, if I want to choose a unit trust or an ETF, uh, I, you know, I, A, I got to decide, do I do uh, country, you know, do I do, no, do I do small cap or large cap? Do I do Malaysia? Do I do ASEAN? Do I do Asia, global? Or do I do industry, right? Yeah. Energy. So many questions. Or, and then once I do that, which fund manager? Yeah. And, you know, I've been financial services for quite a while. That's a huge challenge for me. So I can't Cause, imagine because you know too much. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just well, for me to be able to make an informed decision. I still can't make an informed decision yeah. without actually doing a lot of work. So, so you know, given that I'm time poor, I just put. If I'm making investment decisions myself, I just make it on on really simple stuff. Because yeah. when 
I invest in, in, and I have invested in shares on the back of, 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 of friends, you know, telling me, giving me tips. That's not investing. That's just pure gambling. Yeah. Because you know, you haven't done your own research. You haven't done your own due diligence. You're just like betting off someone's whatever. Yeah. So, you know, when I invest, I invest in stuff that I understand and I'm comfortable with. And those are the few things like real estate, gold, etc. If I don't, I outsource it to professionals and let them make decisions because I don't have the time bandwidth to make an informed decision. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but now it's just Hello Gold. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you're all in on Hello Gold. I'm all in Hello Gold, yes. Uh, did you ever have, um, when you were young, younger, uh, did you ever have a, a target that you wanted to retire with or you wanted to have a, a certain amount of money? Because some people, they do, right? Mm. They want to retire with yeah, 5 yeah, million sure. US or 10 million US. Yeah, or yeah. One, or five, you know, did you ever have that? Oh yeah, I've had that since I was, you know, I don't know, 15. It kept on changing. Really? Yeah, I wanted to be an so, astronaut. So it's everything, right? Astronaut, I want to be an astronaut, then I want to be a lawyer, then I want to be a banker, then I want... You know, I want to be a footballer, but I was shit at football. <laughs> uh, then I wanted to man manage Manchester United, but that didn't happen either. So, so my targets kept on changing, um, both on the financial and non-financial sense. I, I think it's great to have targets, right? But just don't get too obsessed yeah. by them because things happen all the time. Yeah, yeah. But yes, absolutely, I had targets. Um, but I, I made detours along the way uh, yeah. in my life, uh, in the career choices I made, uh, which made made those targets less achievable rather than more achievable. Yeah. You know, there's this guy called Yusuf Hashem. He's kind of like this corporate guy that left his job early on in his life. Mm -hmm. he, he left it when he was in his early 50s. And then he spent the, the, the last 20 years, or in fact, the, la the, the last 20 years of his life traveling, seeing the world, Patagonia, mm -hmm. North Pole, yeah. South Pole, that kind of thing. And he's got this idea that um, everybody's life, mm -hmm. of course it's true, right? Mm -hmm. You're on a minimizing time scale. Mm -hmm. If you're 50, then you've got only like 33% of battery life left. Yes. Does that play to your mind when you do this business and at, at some point in time you've got to say, okay, look, enough is enough. I'm going to spend the rest of my life, you know, trying to get healthy or whatever or, or seeing the world or whatever, traveling or whatever. Um, yeah, it does, right. Uh, I, I think when you are the 20-something-year-old me uh, didn't think, never thought about life. I mean, when 20-something-year-old me thought 30-year-old was over the hill, right? Yeah, yeah, enough, really, yeah. <laughs> um, the 20 something year old me was very different in terms of my outlook in life and what I wanted to do than the 51 year old me now. So yes, that, that place to me, I'm very conscious of the, 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 the career sacrifice I've made, you know, cause I, I, I left my last gig, um, and there's a huge opportunity cost, right? Um, because you have that diminishing window. Uh, and, and so yes, it does. And this is why it comes back to the original point I made is that, look, you don't do this thing if you don't have an itch. And that itch better be so itchy that you, you have no choice but to scratch it. If you can put ointment on it, put ointment on it. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, look, a cousin of mine asked me this uh, just recently, I think just after the new year, I think he, he was looking at all these opportunities. You know, he had startups, not startups, but, you know, relatively mature startups come to him asking, should I... Can I, do you want to work for us? And he said, what do you think? Should I do it for the money? I said, you never do it for the money. Yeah. You do it because you believe in what they're doing. Because, uh, and he's in a great gig, right? So I said to him, you know, you, you do it if you have an itch. Don't, yeah. If there's no itch, don't even think about it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's come at a huge sacrifice, right? Because obviously, the, you know, you, you, I'm, sh I'm sure you don't get to work out enough and to look after your... Well, that's the thing. Right? So this year, so I, <laughs> I, I actually, so, so you're right. So um, 
for the last year and a half, you know, I have like not really, you know, managed my non-work side. Yeah. And so you, it's like overwhelming yeah. in favor in in in, in the aspect of work and, yes. and whatever. And all the other departments are like mm-hmm. without they don't have you. Yeah. So what I did, <laughs> what I did for <laughs> New Year, because you know everyone always has New Year's resolutions. Yeah. So I thought, you know what. I'm not going to do New Year's resolutions because New Year's resolutions always never work out because I've been doing it for the last I don't know, 30 years. So I said, I'm going to do it differently this time. I'm going to start my New Year's resolutions before New Year's. <laughs> <laughs> so I started on Boxing Day and I, and I started working out. And I said, I'm going to work out every day as much as I You look like you're quite trim now, you know? So you, I, I did. Yeah. I've, been, I've been doing that. Uh, and so I'm now in the routine. So that's why. So my top tip for 2019 is don't do new year's resolutions on new year's day do it before new year's resolutions so you have a running start so by the time you get to new year's day you're in the zone yeah yeah, yeah a lot of entrepreneurs they don't know they don't realize the scale of the sacrifice is it's not just your time away from your family it's also time away from your health your fitness yeah. your, your body your spiritual side as well because yeah. a lot of people don't have time to meditate or whatever yeah for it's, sure it's, it's a huge sacrifice yeah but you know, like I said, this is where uh, you, you have a portfolio of things. Right? You have a portfolio of things that you want to do with your life in yeah. terms of you know, spirituality, getting fit, you know, spending time with your family. And this is why it comes back to my itch. I know I keep on uh, lab- you know, talking about it, but that's, you don't see it as a sacrifice yeah. when you're in it because this is what you want to do. I mean, you yeah. desperately yeah. want to do it. You know? It's not a job. It's kind of, if this is not, if, if I'm not doing this, I don't feel fulfilled yeah. kind of thing. I feel empty. So you don't, I mean, if you start seeing it as a sacrifice, then I think you're in a very dangerous place. Then yes. you probably shouldn't start it in the first place. Yeah. So, so let's end with success. What, what is success to you? Success to me would be, you know, Hologol being recognized around uh, the emerging markets as the business that brought... Uh, a great financial solution to a lot of people that are disenfranchised and so yeah. that we can, you know, and, and in our own way, uh, narrow the gap between the disenfranchised uh, and, and the wealthy. Hey man, thanks for doing this. No worries. I'm sure your app and your business will eventually, I'm, I'm, I'm a client, I'm a convert, so I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Thank <laughs> I, you. I have been the one that bought gold from Bokong and I, I realized how bloody much I paid for it eventually. <laughs> and then I met you. <laughs> hey, thanks, man. No worries. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you.